Hi everyone, morning. Nice to see you this morning. Happy Easter. Hi to everyone online. Thanks for joining us. And if you're visiting us this morning, hope you are enjoying being with us. You're really, really welcome. It's great to celebrate with you this morning. And isn't it great when you get some good news, when you have good news to share or you hear some exciting news, maybe you passed an exam, maybe you got that job you were going for, maybe someone's having a baby, you've won 10 stars for camp, all of these good things. And have you ever had good news to share and you think about how am I going to do it? And there's different ways I've observed in, you know, as people have shared good news with me, you get the standard way where they'll just mention it in conversation, whether out the blue or, you know, as you're chatting or maybe a little text comes through, I got the job, and you're like, hooray, so, you know, that's the normal way. And then sometimes people like to make a little game out of it. Maybe they leave clues or they leave some hints or they give a little gift with a meaning or they play bingo or there's something to figure out, there's some kind of little game there. Or sometimes people like to pretend that it's bad news and then they switch it for a big surprise. I remember once when we were kids, we told them we were going to Auntie Hilda's 80th birthday party and uh, we were picked up straight from school and we were in the back of the car and we were off to Auntie Hilda's, which we were all really excited about. And then as we were driving along, my mum said, oh, we just need to sign her card. And she passed the card over to us. And when we opened it, there was a, a message on the inside and it, we were actually we were going on holiday. <laughs> and that was, that was amazing. That was a good surprise. But I have seen a few fail versions of these where uh, people have been told, like, oh, we're going to grandma's house. And then they're like, we're going to Disneyland. And the kids are like, but I wanted to go to grandma's house. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a risky one. So sometimes people like to throw in a big surprise. What do you find as well when there's a, like a big surprise or news is announced? There's always one like amateur detective who likes to tell everyone how they had got a hunch and they knew all along what was happening. It's like, when I saw, when I saw how she opened that packet of crisps, I just knew then she was pregnant. I'm like, how, how did you get it for that? But anyway, so there's always one of those about. Anyway, today we're celebrating Easter, uh, the day when, when Jesus uh, conquered death, that he's alive, winning for us eternal life. I was thinking about, uh, maybe for some of us, in our experience, when did we first kind of hear or understand or get to grips with the news of what Easter is all about and kind of realize what it means for our lives. And maybe for some of us, it came as a big surprise. Maybe Jesus kind of, you know, stepped into our lives in a significant way. Maybe it was an answer to prayer. Maybe it was a, a healing. Maybe it was something unexpected. Or maybe it was kind of just the normal, it was part of a conversation, if you like, part of a journey of kind of discovery in a very kind of normal Way And maybe some of us are still on that journey, asking questions, thinking about it for ourselves, and that's a good place to be. So anyway, today's our last in our Easter series, and as Sarah said, we've been looking at Easter from different characters' perspectives, and today we're going to look at John and his recording of what he saw on the very first Easter day. And uh, last week, Sarah looked at Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor in charge of the region at the time, and on the Thursday... Late at night, Jesus was arrested secretly uh, by the Jewish authorities. And then early on the Friday morning, he was handed over to Pilate, who questioned him, interrogated him. He found Jesus innocent. And he said numerous times, I find nothing wrong with this man. He is innocent. But he caved into pressure from those around him. And he sentenced Jesus to death on the cross, which the, as well as in the Bible, other historians, ancient historians recorded it, such as Tacitus, who says, Christus, 
from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And then the Jewish leaders, after Jesus had died, he was brought down from the cross, he was laid in a tomb, and the Jewish leaders went and asked Pilate for a Roman guard and a seal to seal the tomb so it would be secure. Um, and in Matthew it says this, Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. And so this then is what happened on that very first Easter Sunday. It says this in John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and had found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John. We'll talk about that later. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter. He wanted that recorded for all time, that he was faster. And he reached the tomb first. He stopped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead, and then they went home. And so John arrives at the scene, and maybe by now, by the time they got there, they'd heard from the other women who'd gone down early in the morning, their story of discovering the empty tomb, and that they'd seen Jesus alive on the road, or maybe they hadn't heard that yet. But either way, he arrives at the scene, he looks into the tomb, he sees the grave clothes left behind, but he hasn't gone in, and then Peter shows up in second place, goes straight inside, and perhaps from his angle, you can see the headcloth is you know, folded up neatly separately, and then when John follows inside and sees it, he says that he saw and believed. And something about this scene, something about the way the cloths were lying there, the way they'd been folded, the way they'd been placed, something about it, in this moment, in seeing the scene, John knew that Jesus was alive and he believed. And I think to myself, it sparks my imagination. What was it? What was it that John saw? What was it that he caused him in this moment to realize that actually Jesus is alive. And I think, was it something personal? You know when you know someone really well, and they have those like telltale signs that they've been there? Like if you walk into a room, and you can just see that this person has been in this room. So in our house, we used to have a phrase about, there was a particular member of the family that would leave a trail of destruction wherever they went. There'd be a bag, there'd be a coat, there'd be shoes, there'd be crumbs, there'd be a coffee cup, etc., etc. A trail of destruction. Or maybe you're in an office, and just by the footsteps, someone's footsteps, you can tell who it is coming down the corridor. And, uh, and or, you know, in our house, now you know when you get married and you move in together, you discover things that you thought were normal and were the way to do things, and then you realize, oh, hold on, someone else does it differently. Now, for me, okay, this is how I fold bread, okay? When you've had bread, and then you go to put it away, this is my technique where, and I don't know if anyone does it, you, you twist the, the bread wrapper, and then you use the little seal, which comes provided, to seal it in place. Now, I thought that this is how normal people 
close bread. This is how bread has been done in generations of Richards, passed down from one to the next since sliced bread. This is how you do it, okay? But no, Precious, okay, she's got a different, she does this kind of weird folding technique where the bread goes like up in the air and around and comes down knotted like this. Now, I, I haven't got the dexterity for that, but the thing with this one is that that little seal, his, his sole purpose in life is to seal the bread. He's now living a purposeless life on the side of the bread. So I, anyway, I don't know what's going on. So I, you can tell who's had toast in our house, okay? There's normally more crumbs after mine as well, but that's how we tell. So anyway, maybe there was something about the, the cloth, something about them lying there, something about the way they've been folded. And John sees it and thinks this just, this had to be Jesus. This had to be Jesus. Because, of course, John knew Jesus really well. They were close friends. And um, Jesus had like a whole crowd of followers. And out of that crowd, he had his 12 disciples. And in, you often see in different moments, where out of that 12, where he even took just three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they were like his close little, close group. And even within that three, it seems that John was kind of really, really uh, close with Jesus. And um, in the account, you see how uh, uh, that John records, he describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, as we saw earlier. And partly this was like an author's technique to keep himself like anonymous in the story, because he was the author. And, uh, and it's true, obviously, Jesus loved all the disciples, but he's kind of sharing, you know, a closeness that they had. Some, one guy actually um, commented, said maybe it was a nickname that the other disciples uh, gave him. You know, if you think it's like a group of men, uh, and they're traveling around together, almost like three years, you imagine like in an office, everyone's got a nickname, haven't they? So, you know, like I was sometimes you tease, oh yeah, you're the, sa- the favorite child or the favorite sibling. Maybe they used to tease John, I don't know. Anyway, so he says, that's how this phrase he uses. And we see the first time he uses it was the night that Jesus was arrested. And um, it shows the close bond that these two had, and Peter as well. And this is what it says. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. And the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? And leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? And so we get this picture of Peter and John and their their concern for Jesus and their closeness to Jesus and their care for Jesus. And the phrase that John uses here when he says how he was sitting next to Jesus on the table, you know sometimes how there's a way of saying things. It's not like necessarily literal, but it, it communicates something. So for us, we might say, you know, we might say, oh, we stood shoulder to shoulder. And you don't necessarily mean you were literally standing shoulder to shoulder, but it's saying how, you know, we were in it together. Do you know what I mean? So this phrase that John uses here, it sounds a bit weird when you read it today, but it, it has a meaning. So John says, um, it says, rather than even sitting next to Jesus, it says, he was reclining in the bosom of Jesus. Okay, which, you know, but what it means basically is it's not just sitting next to someone. Like you could sit next to someone on the bus, but you don't know them. But it was a way of saying that they were sitting next to each other because they were close friends. Does that make sense? So that's, so that's the phrase that John uses here to show the friendship that they have and how we were sat with Jesus. And I love how, you know, when you're, you're children or kids or you're in school and you've got to ask your parents or teacher for something and you, you pick who's the most likely to get the answer that you want and how Peter turns to John, go on, you ask him, you ask him. So, but crucially with John, we see that when Jesus was crucified, of all the disciples, all 12 of them ran away in fear 
And only John made it all the way to the cross to stand with Jesus. And it says this later, John records, when Jesus saw his mother standing there, so sorry, standing near the cross with Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. And so John was there standing with Jesus' mother, and it was to him that Jesus entrusted her care. He made it all the way to the cross to stand there with Jesus. And I think this can be a real encouragement for us, uh, how John was, because when you look through the Gospels and Acts, you see how Peter and John are often like paired together. And they seem to have quite different personalities. Peter's like a real go-getter. He's loud. He's active. He's always the first to pipe up. And John seems a little more steady, a little more having, having a lot. Like, yeah, it was, you know, he was nicknamed that he might have had a bit of a temper. But other than that, he seems a bit more steady. So earlier we see, you know, when they're running to the tomb, John stays outside and looks in, whereas Peter just charges straight in. He messes up the scene. Uh, later, when they meet Jesus on the beach, and um, they're out fishing, and John is the one who realizes that it's Jesus on the shore. He's the one who he realizes first it's Jesus. And then when he tells Peter, Peter jumps into the water and swims to shore. Or later in Acts, we see how Peter and John, they're often traveling together, and they get arrested, and they get put on trial. And it's always Peter recorded who's speaking, but John's always there right beside him. And I think this is an encouragement for us that whatever our personality is, whether we're like a Peter and we're kind of, you know, we're, we're a bit louder and we pipe up and we're that kind, of, you know, that kind of way, or maybe we're a little more like John and we're a little more steady, if you like, that either way, within our own personality, that we can show courage, that we can witness to Jesus, that we can share the reality of the difference that he's made in our lives, in our own words and in our own way, and within who we are, because this is what these guys did. And so we can do that too. And so for John, what did he describe when he saw Jesus on the cross, up there, close and personal? What was his experience? What was his story? This is how he describes it. He says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And later he says, as Jesus says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is what John records, and this is what Jesus did for us, that God longs for friendship and relationship with each and every one of us, that we would know his goodness and his love and his heart for our lives and that we'd experience that. And for that reason, he came into the world as a man himself, Jesus. And Jesus lived a life that showed what God is like in the way that he spoke, in the way that he healed, in the way that he ate, in the way that he called people from all walks of life and society and brought them back into the fold. And then ultimately, Jesus died on the cross. And when he did that, he took on all the wrongs of humanity as the leaders and the, those in power were jealous of Jesus and 
sought to get rid of him. And he allowed, if you like, the worst of humanity to be taken out upon himself. And even though he was found innocent, he was murdered and crucified on a cross. For when Jesus died, he took on all the wrong of humanity onto himself. Everything that we've done wrong, anything we've said or thought wrong, all of that, everything that would separate us from God and brings brokenness into our world, he died with it on the cross. But because Jesus himself was innocent, had come from heaven to earth, had done nothing wrong, three days later, he rose to life again because death couldn't hold him. He was never separated from God, the source of life, the Father. And so death couldn't hold him. And he broke the power of death over our world. He broke the brokenness of our world. He broke through that ceiling that held us all captive so we could have a new future, a new change, a healing of our lives and of our world totally. And he came back to life, winning for us eternal life. And 40 days later, after appearing to many people and sharing this good news, he went back to heaven where he is now. And one day, Jesus promises he will return to our world and he will bring a total restoration and healing to our world and all the brokenness and all the pain and everything like that will be gone and heaven and earth will be one. And until that day, we can experience the reality of Jesus in our lives now. When we welcome into our lives, he forgives us for the things we've done wrong. He empowers us and lives within us and helps us to live in this broken world every day with his strength so that we can bring God's love and goodness and light and life into our world right now. And we can play our part in that journey and we can know his friendship in a real and personal way, just like John did. And so when John looked at that empty tomb, he knew that it was something about it was unmistakably Jesus. And it reminds me of a few stories I've heard recently of people who experienced Jesus in their lives. And for them, it was like it was unmistakably Jesus who had done something in their lives. And the first one is uh, Letitia Wright, who you might know if you've seen the Marvel and Black Panther. She's one of the stars in it. And she says how I saw an interview with her on this morning back when the film first came out. And she shared it in a few different interviews. She says, well, before she was a Christian, her career was really taking off. She was getting different roles and things were going well, but that she wasn't happy. In fact, the pressure of being a young actress, um, she was really struggling with it, and she slipped into depression. And she says how one day she was at home, and she just didn't really know what to do, and she walked into her room, and then suddenly she got a phone call out of the blue from a friend, and this friend was a Christian, and he was actually in the middle of traveling. He was on his way to South Africa, but he said how he felt God had prompted him to give her a call, because she was struggling and to speak to her. And so she began to share what was going on in her life. And he said, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Have you ever thought about Jesus? And he began to share who Jesus is and what he does and the difference he makes in our life. And he invited her to come to church with him when he came back uh, to the UK. And they went along together and she went on her own journey and discovered Jesus for herself. And in this interview, she said, as she talked about the difference Jesus made, she said, it really just gave me so much love and light within myself. I felt secure, like I didn't need validation from anyone else or getting a part. My happiness wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on my relationship with God. And it prompted her when she first became a Christian, she felt a prompt from God to give up acting for a while. And she just secured this big part in a film with Nicole Kidman. And it was probably going to be a big break, but she felt God prompted her to say no. And she turned the film down, which was like a big step of faith. And, you know, but then that helped her kind of in a bit of recovery. And then it wasn't long after that she got offered the role in Black Panther. So that was pretty amazing, isn't it? 
So you can, there's a few places you can hear her story if you want to, if you've got the Bible app or things. And then another story, a few weeks ago in small groups together, we were sharing our stories, and I, me and Adam had paired up, and he was telling me about how before he became a Christian, he knew Sean at school, they were teenagers, and she'd shared her faith with him. And uh, one day he said how he was over his friend's house um, with different friends, you know, just with his mates, lads hanging out. And he suddenly had this sudden, like, conviction or a strong inner calling, is how Adam described it, to get up and leave where he was and go to Sean's house. And it was, you know, really strong. And so he did. He got up, left his mates, left the house, walked to Sean's, knocked on the door, and he said, Sean opened the door and looked really shocked because in her house just then were her friends from church, and in that very moment, they were all praying for Adam. And he walked in and was like, wow, that's amazing. And that kind of kick-started Adam's uh, journey of faith and exploring it for himself. And so these may not be the most dramatic stories, like John on that first Easter morning, but sometimes Jesus does something in our lives, isn't it? And that's unmistakably Jesus. Now, talking of Adam... Going to tease you a bit here, Adam, okay? Now, Adam's a very, if anyone knows Adam, Adam's a very logical person. 20-year career in engineering. If you want something done precise, if you want something measured, if you want to make sure it's on the dot, Adam's the man to go to. Methodical, gets a job done, loves a, loves a ruler. So these are some telltale signs that Adam's up at the office, okay? You may see some measurements dotted, you know, straight lines, perfect, precision. What else have we got? You may, now, when Adam... Me, when Adam first started working at the office, back in the day, up in our Penland building, we got this like key-covered thing, and the keys were chaos. None of them were labeled, do you remember? They were all different colors. You'd be searching for each one, a bit like the tray at the back up here, if you have anything to use that one. If you're looking for a key for something, you couldn't find it. When Adam's been in the office two days, bang, that's sorted. Color-coded, labeled, now you're never lost for keys anymore, amazing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why that picture's there. Okay, they're all a bit random. Anyway... The last one, it may not be up there, but Adam's favorite tool at the office is the, the labeling machine. He discovered you can get a labeling machine. Anyone, anyone help you got a labeling machine? Everything now is labeled. At one time, even the labeling machine itself was labeled. So anyway, very precise, very pre precision. Now, maybe for John, okay, it wasn't, just, um, it wasn't just the personal, oh, is this something of Jesus, but maybe... As he surveyed the scene, as he turned up and saw what was happening, maybe it was like the logical conclusion for John as he looked at it. So he arrives at the tomb, and he sees the Roman seal, which isn't meant to be touched, is broken. That the guards who were stationed there are gone, that they fled. Maybe there was remnants of a, you know, a shield or a spear as they ran away. The clothes, the grave clothes, have been left behind, and these would have been used to wrap the body with spices and embalming. And, you know, it would have been a lot of cloth and it would have been a long process wrapping up the body, which was part of the burial custom, layered with spices. So this would take a long time to undo. And then not only to undo, but to fold up neatly and to, to almost have them in piles, one for the body, one for the face cloth. If someone was trying to rush and steal the body and get away from the soldiers, you know, why would they take the time to do that? I mean, who else in your household, okay, if you've done the laundry, you've washed it, you've dried it, and then rather than folding it and putting it away, you live out of that clean laundry basket for the next two to three days. This is anyone else's experience. Anyone else done that before? So if they were in a hurry, it just doesn't make sense. Now, these are some of my favorites. <laughs> now, the authorities... 
They wanted Jesus dead, so this was no good to them, the tomb being empty. All the men amongst Jesus' followers had run away and were hiding in locked rooms, afraid that they might be next. And so at this point, as John surveys the scene and sees what's going on, maybe for him, the kind of the next, the logical conclusion is that Jesus is alive. He says how, at this point, he remembered the things that Jesus had said and done, and how in the Old Testament, how it points towards the fact that Jesus would rise from the dead. He says, until this moment, he hadn't understood. So Psalm 16, for example, written hundreds of years before, talks about it where it says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And John suddenly remembers the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus taught, what the Old Testament is talking about, what the women have described, the scene in front of him, and it just makes sense that Jesus is alive. Now, for me, when I reflect on it, and I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking of all the hundreds of thousands of men who were crucified by the Romans. When I'm in schools, I share the Easter story. I always say, it wasn't just Jesus who died on the cross, and the, the children, the young people are usually shocked because they, oh, I, they just thought that was Jesus. But, you know, this was a form of Roman execution, and it was so brutal that it was reserved for conquered people and for slaves. And the idea of it was, because the, the society was built on slavery, it was to stop slaves from rebelling by having a punishment so brutal that you wouldn't even dare to kind of rebel or as a slave, because the whole society would fall apart if the slaves kind of did that. So it was like the total, uh, what's the word, deterrent. And in the society at the time, which is a very honor-shame culture, crucifixion was shameful. It was a taboo subject. It was not something to be associated with. And so it was a very effective way of putting down rebellions. And there were many little pockets of rebellions or groups or societies or people who claimed to be a messiah and different things, you know, who were crucified. And it was a very effective way of stamping it out. So I was thinking for us today, of all the different, you know, the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people who were crucified, who do we know of today? I can think of two people. One, Spartacus. If anyone's seen the uh, Spartacus films and that story, it'll be made into a Hollywood film, but it's not kind of in the same league as the only other person is Jesus. Isn't it? Jesus. And think of how the message of Jesus has changed our world. It's remarkable when the might of the Roman Empire, which is used to crush things like this, stamped on him. You know, we don't hear of any others. That was the whole point of crucifixion. That's why we don't know of the others. It was effective, except what was different about Jesus? What was different about that? It's amazing. Something must have happened. It reminds me of uh, Francis Collins, Sarah shared earlier about Alpha, and he shares his story in one of the first episodes or two. He was head of the Human Genome Project, and he headed up the U.S. vaccination program in the pandemic. And he talks about how when he was a trainee doctor, uh, he didn't come from any kind of religious background or anything. Um, he said how he was at a patient's bedside, and uh, they'd not long gone through a cardiac arrest, and they'd managed to come through it. And uh, she said, he said this particular patient was sharing her story and shared about her faith and how that was helping her through this time that she was going through. And then he says, he turned to her and said, and what about you, doctor? What do you believe? And he said he realized that in that moment, that when it came to some of the most important questions of life, 
is there a God and what happens when I die? That he had never taken the time to consider the evidence. He said, I've never taken the time to consider the evidence and I'm supposed to be a scientist. And it led him on a journey of investigation where he began to look into it for himself and very methodically in an Adam type way, you know, went through all the different, you know, uh, looked at different religions, different faiths, the evidence. And when he came across Christianity and he looked into the evidence, the historical evidence, the evidence for Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection, he came to the conclusion that it was real and true. And he became a Christian and he shares his story in Alpha. And maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online and you're in that moment of exploring and questioning and you want to come to your own mind and your own decision. And that's a great place to be. And if that's a place that you're in, then I'd say that Alpha is a really, really great place to explore that and to ask those questions. And uh, it will kind of give you the information you need to, to make up your own mind. And so I'd encourage you to come if you're thinking about it. And then so thirdly and finally, this is like the biggest moment in human history. And Jesus obviously uh, isn't going to leave it without a big surprise as well. And I think when we read some of the resurrection stories, you get a sense of Jesus' sense of humor as well. And so this is uh, later that day. It says this, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And it's at this point that John, the amateur detective, pipes up and tells them all how he had a hunch and he'd worked it out earlier, earlier on. And he knew all along when he saw the folded uh, cloths. Again, uh, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I love how it says here that they were filled with joy when they realized that Jesus was alive and that he had achieved what he set out to do on the cross. And for us, that's our experience as well, isn't it? When we welcome Jesus into our lives, we know his peace as he promises. We know the gift of the Holy Spirit that God himself comes to live within us and is with us every single day and we experience his joy. And it's not just for them, but it's for us too. And then Jesus says, go, I'm sending you as well. So let us continue to share the good news that we have received, whether we share it like Peter, whether we share it like John, whether it's in a conversation, whether a big surprise, however we do it, let's be ready to share because it's life-changing and it's God's love for us today. So why don't we pray? Jesus, I thank you for all that you did for us on the cross, that you broke the power of death, that death is not the end because you came back to life, that you've won for us the gift of eternal life, that you meet us in our lives today, that you do life with us. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great power. And we thank you that you are alive. And if you're here this morning and um, as I'm, you know, just been sharing or throughout the meeting and maybe you haven't made that choice to welcome Jesus into your life and to accept in your own life and in your own experience what he's done for you, then I'd just love to give you the chance to do it now because it's just a simple saying yes and responding to that offer of friendship and welcome. And so you could just pray a simple prayer like this with me and say, Jesus, I thank you that you gave your life for me on the cross. 
and that you came back to life and you're alive today. Would you forgive me for the things that I've done wrong? I want to do life with you. Would you come into my life now with your presence and the Holy Spirit to walk with me each and every day? And I thank you for that promise of eternity with you that when I die, it's not the end, but there is a future. Help me to live for you and to know you more in my life. Amen.